Hello, and welcome to our podcast. My name is Dr. Mark White, and today I will be talking to you about the 5% rule. What is the 5% rule? I'll explain. The 5% rule is a guiding principle we have developed from observations made while working with patients with chronic disorders. In my last podcast, I described that it is possible to create large changes in these patients, that is, those with chronic problems, much more so than what the scientific literature generally indicates. In inferential statistics, we know it, the 5% rule, as the threshold of probability that on one side, due to chance, a particular event may be observed, and on the other side, there's a 95% chance, really an asymptotic 94.999 plus percent chance, that the event of interest occurred because of our intervention. In other words, there is a 95% chance that what is observed is the expected consequence of an experimental trial if the experimental hypothesis is true. To put it differently, if our experimental hypothesis is false, we should not observe a beneficial outcome. Only 5% of the time is this likely due to random happenstance. So, we have a small margin of error, and we can have reasonable confidence in our observations that is, 95% confidence in our observations, supporting the experimental hypothesis. Only in this case, the hypothesis is that we have chosen an effective course of treatment. 5% also happens to be the amount of improvement reliably detected over about two to three months of treatment, depending on whose studies you read, though spuriously maintained in patients with chronic problems. Studies on knee and hip OA are good examples of this, and they are replete with descriptions of measurable but small amounts of change over weeks to months of intervention, with gradual deterioration of treatment benefits such that they disappear in long-term follow-up over the next several months after the conclusion of formal treatment. In 2019, Go and colleagues published a systematic review with meta-analysis which pooled results from over 3,000 patients. Their work showed that patients treated for hip and knee OA lost 50% of their improvements two to six months after the cessation of their treatment programs. As time continued, so too did the loss of improvements. These two different seeming pieces of information provide some methodological and evidentiary foundations for how we think about changes in our patients with chronic conditions particularly with regard to how we seek to test and monitor changes. For example, if I want to have 95% or greater certainty in the outcome I am expecting to achieve, I need treatments that have been shown to elicit this type of response. As it turns out, a long list of treatment programs studied, the vast majority of which are exercise-based, have shown improvement in the right range to produce detectable, beneficial, short-term change. However, the kicker is that response must be long duration, i.e. lasting months at a time and maintainable for years. But, as I just reported, studies of chronic knee OA and hip OA demonstrate relief that is transitory in nature. Benefits erode over time and are not apparently simple to maintain. I believe there are important and fundamental reasons for this which have been overlooked, but before we get to that, a little more about the 5% rule. As I stated earlier, the 5% rule derives from both inferential statistical understanding of aggregate data and from clinical observation. 
If our intervention causes a beneficial change in a patient that crosses the line to reject the null hypothesis, that is, no change in status due to intervention, then we know we are moving in the right direction, i.e. this supports the hypothesis that our intervention is making a difference. But is this a realistic amount of change to expect that we can unambiguously label as a success? The research literature indicates that improvements in chronic conditions tend to max out at about two to three months, and this change in HIPAA-NEOA, about 5%, technically 4.8% overall in a cluster randomized controlled child study by Cloak and colleagues in 2018 that appeared in the PT journal, and 3.4% overall in the systematic review by Regno and colleagues in a Cochrane review published in 2015. In still other studies, the largest change we found listed was 9% in one domain. I think that was pain, but its effect was dragged down 5% when average with other domains of interest. When average across all studies, the mean change expected turns out to be right around 5%. In other words, we can expect a 5% change in patient condition to be a realistically achievable goal based on pain, function, and quality of life and performance measures. And these measures were used in the studies mentioned. Furthermore, it can be measured reliably based on various parameters as described, plus it can include active range of motion, force production, and so on. Last, it can be achieved with a variety of exercise-based or active movement-based, if you prefer, rehabilitation programs. Now, about why effects erode over time. First, the exercise programs for people with unhealthy joints are based upon conditioning programs to improve the fitness in healthy people. This involved the big three interventions of stretching, strengthening, and aerobic conditioning. This is not what unhealthy joints need first and foremost. If we look at the pathophysiology and the known response in the bench science, well, that comes later. But unhealthy joints need up front, when severely deconditioned, nutrition, lubrication, and stabilization. This only occurs in a non-static environment involving movement dose to specifically match to the material tolerances of the tissues involved. In the American College of Sports Medicine-based treatment programs, the starting levels are uniformly too high to elicit the desired response. The stretching potentially introduces length tension problems that exacerbate stability issues, and the aerobic conditioning is problematic as this is dependent upon the exercise mode chosen for cardio work. It is possible the load and stability demands are too high for most of the activities used. Furthermore, as the ACSM programs are based on healthy populations, no description is offered to properly assess the joint tolerance and loading conditions necessary to alter primary joint deficits relating to OA, that is, the integrity of the joint surface cartilage, which is the treatment target, though not necessarily named, in unhealthy patients. In fact, the study by Regno and colleagues specifically mentions that no rationale is provided for the intensity dosing parameters in the studies reviewed. This is a huge blind spot. As you may have guessed, we can hypothesize that prescribed treatment programs lose effectiveness over time because the joint surface is being overworked. This means the chondral surface signaling induces arthrogenic inhibition by various means, including but not limited to surface shearing and erosion, changes in joint osmolarity, low viscosity and nutrient-poor synovial fluid dumping, intercapsular swelling, stretching of said capsule, perceived 
tightness leading to loss of mobility due to this com combination of mechanisms, more stretching, destabilization, and iatrogenic problems cascading to the point that many or most patients discontinue an increasingly ineffective treatment program. So, what has been overlooked? Most of the well-studied current treatment programs fail to address the needs of unhealthy joint surface cartilage and the immediately relevant support structures. As stated earlier, chronic OA problems begin and end up at the joint surface level. The joint surface, the weakest link in the chain of the joint complex, requires methods to address its needs, which are 1. Nutrition, 2. Lubrication, and 3. Stabilization. This is for the most problematic zone of chondral degradation. The surrounding areas may be more resilient, but the damaged zone, incompletely protected by the acquired neuromotor insufficiencies, will be subject to direct or incidental overloading, which will lead to th further irritation, deterioration, and at least ongoing, if not worsening, problems. The cartilage defects will not have a chance to recover. Their loading levels and demand for stability are below that called for by the strength and conditioning treatment models. Thus, in the short term, some joint mobility gains and strength gains are possible, particularly if the strength gains are merely a byproduct of increased neurological activation and not muscular cross-sectional area changes. Hint, one is more durable than the other. If the joint surface chondral needs are properly addressed with a non-strength training approach, but instead a chondral recovery approach, a new foundation of joint surface integrity is established. When threshold criteria are met, this newly recovered foundation may have layered atop it a strengthening program, then one involving increasing stability challenges, and so on. In this way, a durable recovery, and one that is far easier to maintain, is created. Our experience with patients who have chronic pain related to long-term OA in the hip or knee, or both, is that the vast majority of patients who make it to my clinic go on to a good to excellent outcome. The majority are in the excellent category, 90 to 100% recovery, with a clinic mean score of 94% plus or minus 6% recovery by time of discharge. In direct comparison to study outcomes, this means much more recovery than the 5% of most systematic reviews where patients arrive with approximately a 30% deficit, though there's a wide range in this. So we have an effect that's at least 2.6 to 6 times greater than what's in the published studies. And this is a consistent finding, and it is one that we're happy to report. And so there are some features of the approach that are to be expanded upon at another time, but the main takeaways from today's talk are as follows. One, the 5% rule is an empirically, scientifically, and statistically based principle that guides our expectation of real and significant change in patients with chronic hip or knee OA complaints. Two, the vast majority of treatment programs for patients with hip or knee OA are based on models designed for healthy populations, not unhealthy populations with joint irritation. Three, non-joint-centric interventions clearly are capable of producing short-term beneficial effects, but these effects erode over time. Four, a joint-centric intervention, 
properly dosed and evolving over time to match testable criteria and patient needs has, in our experience, proven to be a useful strategy for these types of problems. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our talk for now. Thanks for listening. And, as always, may you and your patients be well. That's all for today.